Well, as you've realized, we are jumping into week two of our summer series in Psalm 139. And just to recap two weeks ago, uh, to get us back there, I imagine our minds are maybe a little slow with how warm it is. Um, so let's, uh, let's remember. Um, the, the idea of this first stanza of Psalm 139 that Matt took us through uh, two weeks ago can be summed up in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. We talked about this idea that God knows us through and through. The theological term being his omniscience. And while, we, we talked about this two weeks ago, while we as followers of Jesus usually remember this to be good news, right? We, we sung about this. Um, there are still moments for us as disciples of Jesus, let alone for those who don't follow him, where God's absolute knowledge causes some panic, causes some anxiety. No one can know these thoughts going through my head right now. No one can know the things that I've done. And so what do we do? Again, we talked about this some two weeks ago. What do we do? We look for a place to hide, try and conceal ourselves. And David seems to understand this. Let, let me read verse 7 for us again, and it'll be on the screen. This question, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Sometimes we approach the Psalms, they are poetry, but we assume that they're all sort of, you know, happy and, and lovely. And so we sort of read this as, oh, David's just, you know, excited that there's nowhere he can go and, and be separated from God. And yet David could have worded this verse 7 very differently if that was the thought he was trying to convey, right? But instead he says, where shall I flee from your presence? He seems to understand this tendency in the human heart at times to want to hide from an all-knowing God. He did this himself at points in his life. Remember him trying to cover his sin with Bathsheba by having her husband come home and sleep with her, and that doesn't work, and then he has him killed. And it's only when the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David directly that he acknowledges before God what he's done. So David knows this tendency to hide that exists in the human heart. And I think this next section of Psalm 139 that we're going to look at this morning is an exploration of that tendency, of that pattern in our lives. So before we go any further, let's do what we always do. Let's take a, a brief pause. Um, this is important always, I think, but particularly on, more moments, uh, on mornings like this where we're going to consider some of these sort of deeper tendencies, these patterns to want to hide from God, right? This is heavy stuff. So take some deep breaths, uh, and then I'll pray, and we'll continue on. Jesus, your presence with us through your Spirit is good news, and yet I believe at times we all forget that. And so be with us this morning. We know you are with us as we consider what your presence in and among and with us really means. Lead and guide us. Pray this in your name. Amen. Let's think about quickly three reasons, maybe you don't believe me, that everybody has this tendency at times to want to hide from God. So let's think of three reasons why one might want to at moments, okay? Three reasons why we at times feel the inclination to hide. The first is 
there are people who are not yet willing to accept the idea that there is an all-knowing God, right? Because if there is an all-knowing God, then he's going to require that we do something with him, that we do business with him in some way. And some people just aren't ready for that. Secondly, and this applies to those who are followers of Jesus, at times we sin, we fall short of God's standard. And we feel this urge to hide until things blow over, right? Or at the very least to show that we know what we did was wrong, was bad. Or thirdly, a third reason that at times someone might want to hide, God is inviting you to a place which you fear to go. God is inviting you to a place which you fear to go. We could call this the Jonah problem. You know, if you're new to the scriptures, you've probably heard of this guy Jonah, and you know his story has a fish or a whale in it somehow, but you'd have no idea how Jonah got himself in that very strange circumstance. Uh, The short version, God gave Jonah a job to do, and it was to go and speak to uh, the Ninevites, this city of people that were enemies of Israel, and God said, go, uh, tell them about the wickedness, the, the evil of their ways, and invite them to repent, invite them to change so that their city might be spared. And Jonah doesn't want to do it, right? Initially, we we believe that he's afraid, but as the book goes on, we realize there's a little more to it than that. There's a real lack of of concern for the Ninevites. In fact, almost sort of a loathing. Why would I want them to repent? So Jonah doesn't want to go, so he hides. So those are three reasons. So what does our psalm say about this tendency to run and hide from God? David poses this question, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Is there anywhere I can hide? Well, verse 8 starts to answer the question for us. David writes, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. This sort of dual imagery of heaven and Sheol, we can think of this in a couple of different ways. One is, we sort of get this from the way David words it. Um, Heaven, David could be saying, or is probably saying in some sense, the highest of heights. Heaven was often thought of sort of in, in, in spatial terms, right? It's as high as you can go in this day and age. That's how it was thought of. And then Sheol, um, on the other hand, was as deep as you could go. It was the depths of the earth. So I can go as high as, as uh, the, the highest of heights or as deep as the depths of the earth, and you are there. But another sense certainly is in life and in death, you're there. So David is reminding us of what we know, of course, must be true, right? If there is a God who's all-knowing, we shouldn't be surprised that he is present everywhere as well. The theological term for this is omnipresence. Jeremiah, uh, God actually speaks through the prophet Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 24, um, showing us this very succinctly. God says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. I should say, this is a rhetorical question, by the way, and the answer is no. I think that's obvious. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So omnipresence, what does this really mean? We're going to do a dangerous thing on a warm uh, Sunday summer morning, and we're going to go on a little theological detour here. Say it's dangerous because, you know, I might really ultimately lose some of you. But stay with me. Maybe I'll just start shouting halfway through um, to, uh, to sort of bring you back. What does omnipresence mean? 
What does it not mean, right? Because oftentimes when we try and consider a theological idea, it's important to think of what it means and also what it doesn't, okay? So a couple of things that God's omnipresence means. First, oh, and I should say, I'm going to borrow largely in this little theological detour from uh, Millard J. Erickson's um, book, Christian Theology. Somewhere Cam, he's probably upstairs, Cam Ogilvie, the chair of our elders, is like cheering because he's a real Millard J. Erickson fan. Just ask him and then, but know that you're going to have to talk to him for 25 minutes after that, okay? Um, So he writes uh, a couple of things that God's omnipresence means. First, God is not subject to the limitations of space. God is not subject to the limitations of space. Here's what Erickson writes. All finite objects have a location. They are somewhere. This necessarily prevents their being somewhere else. My wife and I, if you, you know, have ever had an engagement with either one of us, you will likely know that we at times are late. Um, I'm not going to say who's more to blame. You know, we, we share blame, okay? And uh, so, you know, we'll get a call from someone we're supposed to be meeting. Hey, where are you? I'm at the place. And we have to say, we are not at the place. Uh, we are still at home, leaving, or, you know, we're on our way. Uh, so the person was hoping that we were there, and then they hear, no, you're not here. You're still at home. Um, this is how it works for finite objects. Erickson goes on, the magnitude of finite objects is measured by how much space they occupy, how big something is. With God, however, the question of whereness or location isn't applicable. God is the one who brought space and time into being. He was before there was space. He cannot be localized at a particular point. So number one, God is not subject to the limitations of space. But number two, there is no place where God cannot be found. There is no place where God cannot be found. And here we're going to sort of further branch out. Stay with me. It's going to be okay. This detour is only going to go on for another couple minutes. We need to throw in two more theological terms because this is sort of one of these ideas that in, in uh, theology we have to and hold them together. They're in some ways intention, but we have to hold them together because if we prioritize one over the other, we end up going into places that the Bible doesn't take us. These two ideas are God's imminence and his transcendence, okay? God's imminence, what does that mean? It's the idea that God is present and active within nature, within human nature, within history. We understand this, right? Jesus makes this clear to us. Again, Erickson writes, God is present everywhere, not just in the spectacular or uh, unusual occurrences. So it's not like we have to go and sort of map out God's miracles on a map and say, oh, yesterday God was uh, in, in South America. Oh, oh, today he's over in Asia. No, God is present everywhere. He's at work within human individuals and thus within human institutions and movements. But now you might be thinking back to your high school religions course and thinking, hang on, God is present everywhere. I I seem to remember that being sort of this idea of of pantheism, that God is in everything and in everyone. And yes, that is the territory that we start to veer into if we don't keep God's imminence paired with his transcendence. So what is God's transcendence? It's the idea that God is separate from and independent of nature and humanity. God isn't simply attached to or involved in his creation. He's also superior to it. That's uh, Erickson again. And so if we emphasize God's imminence, the fact that he's you know, present and active in human history without his transcendence, he can almost become 
this impersonal force, the kind of God of pantheism, right, that we can't actually have a personal relationship with. It's almost like matter or something. You can't have a relationship with matter. But on the other hand, if we emphasize his transcendence, that he is separate from and independent of nature, without remembering his imminence, he becomes a God far off, not present or active in the world, not even really interested in it. And so, yes, in a poem, David is exploring some heavy, some weighty theological ideas. God knows all things, and he is present everywhere. So David's answering this question, can we hide from God? No. Yes, God is all-knowing, and at times that can frighten us. But we cannot hide from his presence. We just can't. But thankfully, David's not done. Look at verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. It's as though David is asking, friends, you cannot hide from God, but why would you need to? God's presence is not here harrying, looming, threatening, but leading, guiding, and holding. So let's think back to those reasons that I gave at the start of why one might want to hide from an all-knowing God and consider them in light of these truths that David is now giving to us. The first reason we said is that you can't, you're not yet ready to accept the idea that there is an all-knowing God. So you try and hide from his presence. Well, there's good news for you, friend. You may not see it as good news yet today, but God, out of love, continues to pursue you. Jesus told a story about this to a a group of people that were gathered, and he used um, a parable, imagery, um, that we're not as familiar with because it was about sheep. Um, But in that day and age, it would have really connected with people. And he tells the story of a man who has 100 sheep, loses one of them, leaves the 99 to go and find the one sheep. And then here's what he says at the end of the story. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So friend, if you are hiding from God because you're ready to accept his lordship over the universe, let alone your life, then know that there is nowhere that you can go that the good shepherd won't pursue you. A guy by the name of Francis Thompson wrote uh, a famous poem about this. It's called The Hound of Heaven. Maybe you had to study this in school at some point. Many believe it's based on this psalm. He begins it writing about this this fleeing from God. He writes, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways. But then at the end of the poem, this man stops his flight, stops running, and God speaks. And here's what God says at the end. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I've stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. The second reason we said one might want to hide from God, those moments where we've fallen short of God's standard, we've sinned, and we believe we need to hide until things blow over, until God can cool down a bit. Give him some space. And again, it's as though David anticipates this idea going through our heads or this tendency that we have. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me 
And the light about me be by the light about me be night. Even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Friends, hear this. Nothing that we do is a surprise to God. Remember, He is all knowing. And it's in fact in our weakness, in our frailty, that God's heart is drawn to us. That's hard for us to believe. That's very hard for us to believe. But let me read a passage out of the book of Hosea, one of those moments where yet again the people of Israel are rebelling against God. Here's what God says. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Now we expect this list of all the punishments that they're going to experience. But look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. Then listen to what God says. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, present with you, and I will not come in wrath. If you haven't yet read Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, you need to, and he talks at length about this idea, and I wanted to, you know, quote pages and pages of his book because it's so good, but here's a short quote that gets at this idea. He says, the sins of those who belong to God, for those of us who are in Christ, the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It's not our loveliness that wins his love. It's our unloveliness. But friends, I have been a follower of Jesus for about 25 years, and I still have a hard time believing that. I have a really hard time believing that. That God loves me the same. In fact, his, in some ways, his affection is warm for me in the moments of my failure, particularly those areas that I've been struggling with perhaps for years, you know, and I feel like I'm making some progress and then I fall back into old patterns. I think, man, I got to give God some space, right? As I said earlier, he probably wants to cool off or at the very least, he needs to know that I know that what I did was bad. So I'm going to kind of go and just uh, feel guilty and then later on I'll come back to him ask for forgiveness, and we can sort of patch things up. Friends, if you are in Christ, despite your continued sin, brokenness, and struggle, you cannot hide from God, and you do not need to. You don't need to. In your moments of failure, weakness, our Father's compassion goes out to you. Even the darkness is as light to him. Third reason we said you might want to hide. God is inviting you to a place which you fear. And to this, I want us to just think about some of the words of Jesus, some of the final words that he spoke to his disciples. He said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Tough luck. You don't want to do the, the, the job God's given you? Well, Jesus said you had to, so get to work. No, he wasn't done. He gave them this huge task, but then at the end he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Every single Sunday 
and many times beyond, we say, in Guelph as it is in heaven. We desire to see our communities like more that every person has a relationship with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that scary most days. I find that daunting. It makes me quake a little bit. How are we ever going to see that happen? How are we ever going to move the needle on that? Friends, we do not do it alone. There's no office break room, no university classroom, no kitchen table, no corner of our city that God's mighty hand does not go with you and hold you. We have a big mission, but we do not go it alone. And I simply want to end with this, one last idea. What about those challenges Maybe it's not a pattern of, of sin in your life that you think you need to hide or not some mission that you, there's some job task that you feel like God is inviting you into that frightens you. Maybe it's simply regular life that's a challenge, that you feel alone. You wonder where God's presence is. Maybe you feel like you're on the road to Sheol, that land of death and despair right now. Maybe your marriage is a struggle each and every day. Or you're in a job that you did not choose. Or you are experiencing loneliness that you just can't kick. Maybe this verse from this psalm needs to be committed to your heart and mind this week and in the days ahead. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. And maybe that'll be hard to believe today, but as that rings out, that note rings out in your heart, slowly you'll realize it to be true. Because remember, Jesus literally entered into death and the grave on our behalf. And these difficulties, these moments where you feel like you're making your bed in Sheol, these trials can be accomplishing something in you, friend. Mary Wilson, I'll give her the last word. She says this really wonderfully. She says, your trials, no matter how grueling, are not the evidence of God's absence. They can be the very instrument by which God is fitting you, perfecting you for his presence.